All right, welcome to episode 11 of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. We are really in the home stretch of season two. And I just want to share a little bit of info um, from today's partner who's presenting this episode. Uh, Downtown Music Holdings mission is to shift the power center of the music industry into the hands of those who create and those who support that creation by giving them the finest and most comprehensive set of tools and services. Downtown is committed to building a more equitable music business. They believe in partnership, advocacy, and helping musicians develop sustainable careers so they don't require their clients to give up any copyright. So huge thanks to our friends at Downtown. Um, So today is our repeat and grow episode. And, you know, what that means is, like, you did it. You've made it through Uh, You've completed your first release in building a sustainable music career while also ensuring that you haven't missed any revenue along the way. Um, So what we're going to talk about is, you know, winding down the process, knowing when that time is, and then going back to the beginning and starting over, which could feel a little bit overwhelming, but also like not rushing into that process too, because musicians um, tend to get really excited about the next thing, which I, I completely get. Um, This is actually my second book. I have a book out called Interning 101. And, you know, when that book was winding down, the seeds were being planted um, for this book. And actually, I think I've decided to write my third book uh, this summer, The Emily Routine. (laughs) That's that's for you, Maggie. Um, Yeah, breaking news. Uh, But, you know, listen to your intuition to know when to wind down. Like I'm sharing my process a little bit because I still had some like Amazon reviews and things I could share from interning 101, but I knew the sun was kind of setting on that project and I was really ripe um, to start writing this book that this podcast is, is based on. So on one hand, you know, when your creative soul and spirit burns, you know, you know when you're ripe and ready to start getting your art together for your next release. That's how I feel about my third book. I mean, this is going to sound like the most type A thing ever, but at first I was like, oh, I think I'll write that in 2027 um, because I also work on voter turnout. So I was kind of keeping election years in mind. And then the more I talk to people about the idea, and it's not really about that, it's just more that I'm talking about this idea and I can really feel it like in my gut um, to do this. At the same time, everything we've covered, taking you through your release and the entire modern music industry, really should take a little bit of time. I mean, we've covered this throughout. This is the 11th episode of the season. We've got one more to go. Um, But make sure you give your project and your release proper time to breathe before you begin again. I've seen musicians, you know, do this a lot where they put something out. They don't even just, you know, really want it to get out there. I mean, not that you don't want it to get out there, but it's just like they're just moving on to the next, um, moving on to making more music. And I get that. But like, try to find the balance, right? Like, let the project get out there, do its thing. You know, we've talked about a lot of ways to do that, but also know when it's winding down. Um, Even if you have a few more things to promote, you know, like listen to your heart, your soul, your spirit, and when it's time to uh, go back to chapter one. So, you know, again, it might be a little overwhelming. (laughs) We've gone through, you know, 10 steps to be like, oh, I have to go all the way back to the beginning. Um, but like anything, as you go, every time you go through each step of the process, you're going to learn it in a deeper and more 
meaningful way until all of this becomes habit, until it becomes habitual. You know, after the last episode, um, I was talking to a young musician named Eli who said to me, oh, well, this stuff just comes so natural to you. Like, or I forgot how he said it, but it's like, it's so easy for you. And my mom happened to be standing there and I said, I didn't know any of this stuff when I started. You know, like when I was 17 years old and I went to college, um, this is way more common now, but I, um, you know, at the orientation for the music program, I I studied music industry. um, We went around and everyone like had their own label, had multiple albums out, had their own studio. And this was in the year 2000. Um, so that's pretty wild actually to think about in hindsight. And they get to me and I'm like, I took piano lessons at Heartland Music. You know, that's all, all I had done. So this stuff, you know, this is all stuff I figured out by navigating it. So like you can do it too, you know, and Eli's like half my age. So, um, this stuff will become habitual for you guys. So, Um, It actually really shouldn't be daunting to go back uh, to the beginning of this process. It it should kind of be like reviewing your material um, from the semester, and soon you'll be able to student teach others, eventually becoming the professor of your own career. Um, So before um, I share the interview with John, I do want to recap everything we've covered. I'm not going to go like super in-depth, but I'm going to go more in-depth than how I usually do, uh, recapping what we've done. Um, So you've gotten your art together. That's the process you're going to start hitting next again, you know, for your next release. Um, You've monetized your music before it's even out with your pre-recording marketing foundation. So that's making sure you have your email list set up. You know, I really like MailChimp for email lists. Um, You have your text message list set up. I really like the platform community for that. You have your Patreon set up. um, So you're keeping your fans in the loop and and monetizing your music as you go. That's basically your online fan club. You will also get data from that. Um, Make sure your social media handles are in place. And then um, you're going to launch a pre-order and you're going to use those tools to do that. And, and, you know, with future releases, that's just going to continue to grow because you're growing your fan, do- your fan data on your um, text list and on your email list. Um, from there, you've gotten your business affairs together. So we talked about the business of recording, uh, making sure all your players, your producer, your engineers, anyone that enters foot into the studio signs a work for hire. Um, which means that you own the recording. So there's no confusion or ambiguity over that later. And you have set up clear clear communication channels on songwriting splits. You know, to me... That, that means like if you wrote all the songs, it's getting together with uh, your players, your engineers, like I said, anyone that's going to be in the studio with you and letting them know, I wrote these songs. And if you feel you contribute to the songwriting process at any point, let me know immediately after the session so we can talk about it. Um, again, it's awful in life when people make assumptions and they don't communicate about things. Um, and that can cause a lot of problems uh, down the line. Um, You've recorded your music. We learned how to record with or without a budget with Ana Ochoa. And you've registered your songwriting to collect on your publishing in full. And also, um, you're ready to go for sync. So, you know, how you register your songwriting to collect on your publishing in full is signing up for a performing rights organization. So that's going to be ASCAP or BMI generally in the U.S. Those are open to everyone. And then you also need a publishing administrator like SongTrust to collect on your music publishing in full. Your performing rights organization is not enough. Do we understand that? 
Because I know I say that a lot, but it's really important to me that you all understand that. Um, also, when it comes to sync, uh, I don't have all the info on this yet, but I was reading a little bit about an organization called Sync Chicago. Um, I again, we're we're recording this in Milwaukee, and I know Sync Chicago is really trying to educate and empower artists, and also like ad agencies there to to work with Chicago artists. Hopefully that means Midwest artists as well, but I would definitely check out Sync Chicago because um, it looks like they're running some cool workshops and really um, digging in and Sync World, and that's obviously very close to here. Um, whoever you're working with for Sync pitching, make sure you have your assets organized for you know ease of delivery, um, nice easy downloads for everyone, Spotify links, um, not like massive attachments that clog up inboxes. And then for, really for any of your team members, oh, Eli, I just talked about you, you missed it. Um, for any of our team members or any team members you're working with, um, and we're gonna talk more about that in the season finale on Saturday, um, but for Sync in particular, you want to contact them, you know, roughly once a month with your latest and greatest highlights, right? Like usually on a Monday or Tuesday, the whole goal is for your email to get read. So like not a Saturday night, um, and let them know press hits you've been getting, shows you have coming up, webcasts, let them know they're always welcome to the guest list and, you know, guest codes for the webcasts. And, and that goes for music supervisors and their teams and, and everyone they work with. Um, from there, you've released and distributed your music properly. Um, if you are working with a publicist, let them know about your release as far in advance as possible um, so they can be ready to go to help you. You don't want to be like, okay, my release is out tomorrow. They're not going to be able to do their job effectively. Um, but regardless, you know, when your release is out, promote your direct-to-fan release. That's ideally going to be through your website. That's re where you're going to retain the most money and get the most uh, fan contact information. Um, and then I would say the second day it's out, uh, let, you know, share on your social media that it's out on Bandcamp. That's where you're going to have your second highest profit margin and also collect quite a bit of fan data. And then that third day, I would promote... Uh, you know, that it's out on Spotify and then the fourth day title fit, you know, and then you can keep uh, spreading that out. Um, we've talked about marketing, how to market with or without a budget. Um, you know, first focus on your own green grass, right? Instead of just like FOMOing over everyone else, even though that's supernatural and, you know, what um, social media is built for, unfortunately. If you truly can't handle the FOMO, um, reach out to those other artists. See if they want to get coffee or get a Zoom because maybe they have FOMO over what you have going on, right? And you can trade notes and, um, and help grow together. Um, I also want to make sure that you have balance um, in marketing, right? So I talked about uh, whether you love or hate um, spreading the word on your music and emails and all of that, um, spending an hour a business day on it um, just to make sure that everyone's getting um, replies. You know, I wasn't, I was thinking about talking about this in the last episode, but I'm going to mention it now. I do think, and I think this is a problem generally, um, and I'm going to guess it's a problem in other music scenes, but I do think the Milwaukee music scene needs to get better at responding to things. It's amazing when I reach out to people here, I probably get a 50% 50, 50 response rate. And I think um, John, our guest today, would be okay with me saying, I was meeting with him at the beginning of this podcast, and I said, I live in New York. Uh, he lives in LA. And I said, 
I feel like people in New York and LA are like much more open to meeting and collaborating and getting together. And here it can feel like a little bit more closed off. And he leaped out of his, uh, out of the chair agreeing with me, which was like really affirming. And so like, those are two people, you know, John and myself that are from Wisconsin. And I think sometimes New York and LA can get a bad rap that like, we're not nice or something there, but, um, people are there for a reason. Like they're hustling, they're working, they're collaborating. So, you know, when people send you an email, write back. And I've explored that a little bit. I've asked people like, why did you take so long to write me back? Or why did I have to follow up with you? And it sounds like it can sometimes come from a place of insecurity. Like, well, I started the draft and then I don't know what to say. And then I didn't get to it. And, you know, my business partner, Melissa Garcia, said to me once, um, there's two types of people in the world. There's those that write back and those that don't. And I would add to that, guess which ones are successful, you know? And the artists that I've really drilled this into their brains, like, they're like, okay, I'm going to be like Emily and like, you know, write back, you know? Just write back. No one is judging you, right? Like, more than yourself. So I do think that's something this scene needs to to work on a little bit. Um, But back to marketing. Um, So, you know, I just touched on this, but when your release is out, make sure you let your email list fans know, your text message uh, club fans. Uh, They're your most hardcores, right? Same with your Patreon. Like if you can let them know the release out, you know, if you can share the release with them early, that's definitely something they deserve. They are, you know, your most hardcore fans. And then, like I said, spread out, um, you know, the, the streaming links, because that way you're posting a different thing every day um, without saying the exact same thing over and over, right? So like that third day it's out, you could be like, it's out on Spotify. The fourth day you can be like, it's out on Tidal. The fifth day you can say it's out on Apple and um, making sure you're tagging all of those platforms as you go. Um, we've talked about engaging um, and growing your audience on social media. Um, that can be as simple as replying, right? Um, I would also really recommend uh, replying with your email list link or with your um, text text club link, right? Like, you know, when people are like, hey, when are you coming to London? When are you coming to Cincinnati? Like, oh, well, sign up for my email list. Like, join the text list. Like, that's the direct way. You know, that's how I can let you know. Um, you don't need to say this. I'm saying it to you because um, we will all move on from Instagram and TikTok um, to whatever's next at some point. If you are getting any press or radio play or you're working with any sort of publicist or radio promo team, also collect as many email addresses um, from folks who are writing about you. I would keep that in a separate list. I mean, most email list platforms will let you have, you know, more than one list. But then you are building up your own database of folks that you know support you. um, And then you have that, you know, to share music videos with, tours, your future, you know, your future music releases. And then you have that all in one place instead of starting over or just constantly paying someone to figure out, you know, who those folks are. Um, We talked about playing live and building an efficient touring strategy. So, of course, that starts uh, with practice making perfect. Um, We talked about really, um, you know, the nuts and bolts of booking a successful local show, right? Um, And that that means not playing, like, every single night. Um, That's really, like, putting all your eggs into one basket and bringing out as many people as possible um, because then you have that hard ticket draw, which is going to help you um, both locally and regionally. Um, 
metrics are also very important, uh, you know, as far as that goes. So it's interesting. Um, there's a journalist that's been attending these podcast tapings and he's doing, he's working on a piece on, you know, I, I feel weird saying this because hopefully it doesn't come off as negative, but I think you'll get it. Um, he's working on a piece about a local musician that I feel like people kind of write about a lot. Um, but I, I downloaded the top trending artists, um, from Milwaukee for him on Spotify. And I said, the number one trending artist by far from Milwaukee is a Thai artist named The Toys. Maybe write about The Toys, right? That nobody is writing about and has like twice as many streams as the second artist who you all probably know, I should have looked it up, but it's a Latin hip hop group that I don't think is getting a lot of press either, right? So you can take these same strategies when you're looking um, to play with artists in regional markets, right? I get all this data from Chartmetric and you literally can type in any city in the world and see what people are listening to and what they're engaging with where instead of just trading like an old spreadsheet um, of, you know, artist names that may or may not be active. So metrics are really, really powerful uh, when it comes to playing live and, and building out your, your touring strategy. Um, if you're comfortable, you can um, play around with house shows. There's there's a variety of companies that'll help with that. Um, in the book this podcast is based on, I break down like Julia Noon's entire professional process. Like she really professionalizes the situation with house shows where it's like, this is what time we're showing up. This is how long the set is. I do merch. I'm out of there by 10. Um, but of course you could also do webcasts, right? Like you can do webcasts on volume, on mandolin, um, on fly machine, like that technology has just exploded, uh, since the pandemic. So you can, you can play around with, you know, webcasts for promo, like on Twitch, um, and Insta Instagram live and stuff, but then think about, you know, a donation or charity or, or ticketed webcast. Um, cause that's also really nice for your fans who can't necessarily, uh, get out to a show. Um, we talked about support tours, how you get opening slots. Uh, it's not necessarily through booking agents. That's something I completely want to dispel. Um, the folks that make the decisions on who's opening for them are artists, right? So you all need to connect as an artistic community because people want to tour with um, people they like, right? Like you want to tour with your friends. So start building and cultivating those genuine and authentic relationships and um, that's how you get, you know, on, on support slots. And we also talked about maximizing tour profits as your touring career starts to grow. Um, I want you, you know, to be comfortable, but at the same time, you don't necessarily need to spend on every bell and whistle that's available, um, because you're not going to be able to tour forever generally for a variety of reasons. So you really do want to bring home as much money as possible. And, we talked about getting your merch together um, with Chris Moon at Ambient Inks. Um, if you're looking for on-demand merch, I really like the company Fourth Wall. Um, they have a lot of money right now, um, thanks to Alexis O'Hannon, I think. I finally learned his name. Serena Williams' husband is one of the VC backers on that. Um, but there's a lot of on-demand company merch companies where the quality is not good. Um, but I've personally had really good experiences working with Fourth Wall. Or better yet, make your own merch, right? Like I talked about the band Harry and the Hootenannies um, has been getting, you know, merch shirts at Goodwill, right? Or you could do a handwritten lyric sheet um, and charge $25, $30 for that. 
Um, and that's going to cost you your time and, and a piece of paper. So get creative with merch, um, always keeping in mind cost of goods sold, um, which is kind of what I'm referring to. Same with like posters, right? Like posters cost 10 cents to press up. You can charge $10 for them. You can charge more for signing them. You can charge more for personally autographing them. And then finally, um, last Saturday we, we went through the revenue stream checklist. I'm not going to go through that again today. Um, but we covered all revenue streams that are owed to you if you write, record, slash release, and play live. Um, and then we also talked about bonus revenue streams. Okay. So, um, you know, starting over absolutely can be overwhelming, right? Because now I'm asking you, like, you're at the end of the release cycle. Now it's time to go back to, to the beginning. Um, but when thinking about this topic, there was no one else I wanted to talk with than Academy Award winner and Milwaukeean. We're Milwaukeeans, right? Yeah. Okay. And Milwaukeean John Ridley. John's career spans comedy, books, TV, film, comic books, and more. And so I was really curious how he's navigated his creative process through these different mediums from a Midwest city to the top of his field. So I chatted with John about this in advance due to his nonstop schedule. And then I want to discuss what you all think about this conversation uh, and how you know when it's time to begin the creative process once again. So like I said, like I thought John was the perfect person to chat with about this because how do you shift from comedy to a film to a novel, right? Like we're mostly just focused on music and starting that creative process over again. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to get John's thoughts on that. So thanks for bearing with the pre-recorded interview and then we'll chat a little bit about it afterwards. So let's bring on my pre-recorded interview with John. Very interested in your origin story. You're originally from Wisconsin mm -hmm. and started college at Indiana university, mm -hmm. but what prompted the, the move to NYU where, as you mentioned to me the other day, you did not get into the film program there, I believe. I didn't, I didn't get into the film program. Um, and I, uh, I was talking to a young, uh, filmmaker, actually just what would be my yesterday as you and I speak. And he went to film school and he was asking me if he thought that it was a, a benefit or a hindrance not getting into film school. And I said, look, I can only speak from my experience. Um, I think there are a lot of positive things that come from not knowing necessarily all the rules or having things prescribed. Um, I, I don't ever want to get whatever gets you where you need to go is the right way. There's, there's no wrong way uh, except not truly pursuing the things that you want to do. Um, but whether you go to film school, whether you don't go to film school, whatever, I, I think for me there was a lot of benefit because it wasn't about, well, you have to know this thing. Uh, for me personally, just at that age, and you know, at every age, but certainly I look back at that age, I had a lot of maturation just as a person to do. Mm -hmm. And I think the program that I was in helped me mature as a person. Um, and then I think the things that you learn in, in life, they find ways to seep into your existence. They are you. So there's no bad thing about, you know, maybe you studied accounting and you went into film. Well, you, you may have a better head for a budget than other filmmakers. Um, you know, if you studied another language, you may then be able to tell stories in different communities that other people may not be familiar with. I think whatever you learn or whatever you do in life can take you places. For me personally, I was running track at Indiana. I just had a lot of injuries. And it was just at the point where it was like, I can't, you know, that up and down is so severe of getting into really good shape, trying to compete at a collegiate level, 
getting injured. And, you know, if this episode is about repeat, sort of rinse and repeat, mm-hmm. you know, it was just a very hard repeat to try to get back to where you were and then get to a higher level. And I was good. I wasn't great. I was good. So it just was like, a, I can't, I needed to put all of that behind me mm-hmm. and really make a decision. And part of going to New York was saying, okay, I'm not running anymore. Let me be in an environment that is maybe more creative. And I just think it was good. You know, I went to New York. It was obviously decades ago. And coming from Wisconsin, I, I always felt that I was open-minded or progressive or uh, had a really good worldview. And then you get to New York and you realize you you don't. Um, there were just a lot of things, a lot of other people's lived experiences that I wasn't ever really exposed to. It's one thing to think you have an open mind and then you have to be around other kinds of people and really, truly, um, allowances is probably not the right word, but, you know, to, to, to give people their space and really make sure that you are treating their experience as wholly legitimate. And again, um, it's one thing to feel like you're open-minded. It's another thing to be in spaces where you're like, okay, I need to, I need to listen. I need to learn. I need to grow as a person. And that was very important, um, in going to New York. So it was, it was more, you know, for me, it was about really closing a chapter on the Midwest Mm -hmm. and not just say, Hey, I'm, I'm, leaving Milwaukee, even if it's temporarily, but I'm going to, you know, Bloomington, Indiana is not that different. It's certainly much smaller than Milwaukee, but in some ways, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I want to be, I don't want to be a myopic individual. And again, I'm not trying to, to, to say that Indiana or Bloomington are just myopic or, or small as, as people. It's a college town. It's, you know, Indiana is a terrific state. People there are wonderful. It, it is, though, smaller than Milwaukee, more homogenous than Milwaukee. So I wasn't growing to me as, as an artist, as a person. And New York was that opportunity. But it was, you know, I need to leave. I need to go. Mm-hmm. And it was just at that time, okay, I'm leaving. If I'm leaving, I need to leave. Right. And so from there, you left for Japan. Um, I went to New York first, and I finished right. school at NYU. And then I did take... And it wasn't directly after school, but there was, uh, you know, call it a sabbatical, some traveling where I went to Japan for a while, which was great. Again, you know, it wasn't that long ago in, in the history of humanity, but it was long enough ago. You know, there wasn't the internet. There wasn't, you know, jump online, take a virtual tour. Oh, let me, you know, get online and just look up all the information about certain things. So there was, for me, it was great because there was a real education that I had to do on Asia in general, Japan specifically, at that time period, uh, people thought about Japan a lot of the way they feel about China. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it for me was going to not, you know, get out of the, the white noise of what right. a country may or may not be and go, okay, let me go. Let me find out. Um, education on the language, obviously. And then it was going in and, and doing. And it was a very important trip for me, not because there was something specific I wanted to get out of it, but mm-hmm. there was a lot of growth again, that I did get out of that trip. And I do think that um, living in another country cranks your brain to think differently, especially as a young person. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just, again, back then, you just, all the things, you know, with traveler's checks, <laughs> you know, where am I going to stay? Making appointments. How do I get around? Literally buying a mm-hmm. compass because you don't have a phone. I mean, it, it, it was a great trip. I think, you know, I, I never want to sound like, 
somebody's dad, but, you know, having to rough it even more and, and, you know, not having Google Translate or things like that, it's a really, really good experience. I really, you know, wherever people choose to go, I, I, I hope we never lose that sense of, you know, part of the college experience is a study abroad program, or whether it's college, whether it's on your own, however you can get there, because I think there's great value in not um, doing things the easy way. And certainly for me, you know, bringing it back around to what we're talking about, um, for me as a younger person, I certainly didn't necessarily have a lot of the follow through. And so Mm -hmm. finding those places where I had the, I could conceive, I could execute, I could actually get things done is just, it's good. And it's good for any anybody of any age, but certainly good for young people who may not feel like, oh, I, I've never done this or I've never done that. But I bet there's something you have done mm. that you've actually seen all the way through. And then you got to figure out, okay, how do I replicate that into something that may be more germane to my career, my life, just drawing a paycheck, getting life done. Um, everybody has that capacity, but you know, if we're in a society where, oh, but you have to apply it directly to school mm. or you have to apply it here. And if you don't, you're somehow a failure. Well, start with where do you succeed? How do you replicate that success? That's right. So from there, you returned to New York and built a national comedy career. Was comedy <laughs> your first creative love? Although the best comedians in the world, Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld, et cetera, often say they're, they're writers first. Yeah, I mean, it was something that fit my life. And on this, I'm not trying to be glib, but, you know, I was compared to a lot of people lazy. Um, I didn't like waking up in the morning. I didn't want to work long hours. I didn't want to work in an office. So, you, I mean, in all seriousness, you start to, what, what, what are you going to do for a living? And at that time, again, you know, decades ago, in the early days of cable, everybody had a comedy show. Everybody was doing it. You know, you could be okay at it. And I would certainly put myself in the extreme okay category. Um and, and make enough money when you're young to, mm-hmm. to live and get by. And that was kind of the fun. And that's the other thing I tell, try to express to young people is enjoy the the trip and enjoy mm-hmm. the, you know, dodging your landlord and, you know, having a rent party or whatever. It, it's, those are the things I think, you know, no, you don't want your entire life to be like that. But when you're young, when you don't have a lot of attachments, mm-hmm. um, you know, this that is a huge part of the process of, you know, being creative in whatever you do and being creative in how you get through life. And I, you know, I, I certainly think it helps, you know, having arrived to a place where I can hopefully continue to pay my bills, it, it makes it easier to look back on those times and go, oh, they, were, they weren't as bad. Certainly, if, you, if you're doing what you do for 30 years and you are still dodging your landlord and still trying to figure out how sure. you pay your when I get, that's not fun. But I do think rather than being anxious about those times where your things don't seem to be working, embrace them and appreciate them. Cause I, I guarantee you those are the, in the end, all things being relatively equal, they're, they're the better times when, when you're coming up. You I know? totally agree. I had a blast coming up. Not, not that I don't now, but yeah, yeah, but it's just a different kind of thing. And it's really enjoyable if you're, if you approach it in the right way. That's right. And take advantage of the free food at, at events. and Free food, the friends, the <laughs> exactly. peer group, the freedom to create. You know, mm-hmm. I, I tell people all the time is, you know, what, what do you, would you, you know, paycheck is nice, but if you're really going into it to be creative, at some point the paycheck is a trap. Yeah. 
and enjoy the space where it's like, I'm doing this with my friends and Mm -hmm. we're just going to put up on YouTube, but you don't have notes. You don't have any restrictions. The only restrictions is your real creativity. And that's where you need to learn. Are you up to the job? Are you up to the challenge? Because it's easy when you get notes to be mad about the notes or Mm -hmm. blame somebody else or push back. But when you have your freedom, there's no excuse for not being your best creative self. Definitely. So I assume some of those relationships and that community building that was happening in comedy led to moving to L.A.? Um, Not so much directly. There were just a lot of people that I knew. At that time, there was a real gold rush going on in in California. Mm -hmm. Particularly, this was the early days of, um, uh, there used to be a network, UPN and the WB, and they combined to become the CW later, but it was also the early days of the Fox network. So they did a lot of programming for what they called, um, slightly pejoratively, the urban audience, mm. which was black people, but they don't want to say black people. So, like, oh, our urban audience, because uh, it I don't know, made them, make them sound, it was a, a euphemism that they mm. like to use. But anyway, and we it was still also- do that in music, sorry to interrupt. Urban. Yeah, I, you know, which to me is like, you know, you know either say that's your audience that you're going for, right. or, you know, anybody- listens to hip-hop anybody exactly. in the country anybody <laughs> or if you're in country why do you want to you know not turn out to be a little nas x or that's somebody right. you know it's like why would you not anyway that's a whole other discussion yeah. but i never like that like oh it's just for urban people no it's it's black entertainment but anybody can watch black mm-hmm. entertainment and I, I didn't like that sort of well it's not for everybody anyway as you say that's another conversation but there was also a realization at that time that if you're going to do entertainment that is closer to very specific lived experiences mm-hmm. You need to get writers who are from that lived experience. So there were um, there was a, a better opportunity if you were black at that time to start breaking into the business. So I knew some people that were coming out, and everybody was like, "Oh, I got a holding deal, and I got you know a deal where you get like X amount of dollars from a studio mm-hmm. to do nothing." And at that time, it wasn't even a crazy lot of money, but you know, if you're young and you've been dodging your landlord. It's enough where you go, oh, my God, if I got that, I'll never have to work again in my entire life. So everybody was coming out here, and I was like, all right, let me go out to to, to L.A. And, and get in on some of that. Didn't quite work out like that initially, but obviously mm-hmm. in the end it, it turned out okay. Absolutely. So when did you write your first novel, which I believe is Stray Dogs? Yeah, so, you know, I wrote that, I guess, in the early 90s, and I got published in sort of the mid 90s and they got made into a film in the middle late 90s and that was good you know it wasn't a big film per se but it was obviously a lot of stars and a star director and um just getting something made was huge so that really made the difference but yeah it was more sitting down and having a real product and then you know it's it's the luck of the draw i mean the right time the right place but yeah having a novel Obviously made a huge difference. Absolutely. And when did directing come into play for you? That would have been the late 90s. Um, I'd been doing some TV. I, I had a better understanding of um, what I was doing. Didn't have a complete understanding. Um, I don't think anyone does when they start, right? Well, I think you should definitely have a better understanding than I did of certain things and more even an understanding of self. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what you do, I hate to say this, is, but you're trying to figure out how not to get screwed in the end. 
Um, that's so much. <laughs> you know, the, the creative part is, I don't want to say it's easy, but, you know, you, you do what you do. A lot of it is figuring out, okay, how do I protect myself, um, protect myself creatively, protect myself emotionally, protect myself financially. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say I didn't have it all figured out, there's certain things where it's like, okay, I, this is, here's a mistake I won't make again. And there's always going to be mistakes you made. There's always something be something you learn, always how to protect yourself better. And I hate to make it sort of like a war of attrition, your career. But again, I think the creative things, you continue to figure out. Mm-hmm. You do what you do. You get better at it. You know yourself better. And the thing about protecting yourself creatively or emotionally or financially, I mean, that's an ongoing struggle. But I think it's really important to understand that. So in that film, I didn't, I had no idea how to either do what I was doing. I had some idea, but certainly not enough. And this is where, you know, we'll go back to the question about film school. I may have had a better understanding of working Mm -hmm. on a set, but it's like going from high school ball to college ball and college to the pros. Mm -hmm. Everything moves differently. But most of it is just learning how to work with people, who not to work with, Mm -hmm. hiring processes. Um, Also, over time, you know, I build up a team. Now, when something's going on, I know who to call. This is somebody I trust. This is somebody who's going to elevate me. This is somebody who knows more than me, but when they say something, I can trust that they're saying it because it's about the project. It's not about their ego. It's not about trying to diminish me. It's they believe in the product too, Mm -hmm. and they're going to do their best for it. So all of those things come together. But yeah, the first time was not good, but the second time was great because I just knew more. And I also was around people who were more aligned with, you know, the, the star of the show needs to be the show. Mm-hmm. The star of your work needs to be, if you're a musician, it needs to be your music. If you're mm-hmm. a writer, it needs to be the writing. It needs to be the dance. It shouldn't be you. It shouldn't be anybody else coming to it. And if everybody doesn't treat that as the star, including yourself, then they're, they they should not be around the, the product. 100%. We almost had you on the first episode, Get Your Art Together. It was either yeah. this one or that. You were perfect for both. Um, but speaking of directing, how did you meet Oliver Stone? How did I meet Oliver Stone? Um, Because think of that from the outside, right? We started with Wisconsin, Indiana, New York. It's like you've worked with these legendary directors. If you recall, how did that relationship initially come together? I don't recall. He was working with somebody uh, who's like in his... I don't know. Uh, Somebody (laughs) that I knew who ended up working with him and who I'd met who was at a studio at the time and then ended up working at Oliver's company. And I don't know. Well, that's the answer to the question. Cause people ask not with Oliver Stone, but people yeah. ask me questions like that. All the time. Oh, how do you two know each other? And I'm like, well, we work in the music industry, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, there's so much of it that just comes out of being out there. And I think, right. you know, that goes to a lot of people like, Oh, do I need to be in LA and things like that. And I think, you know, it's the benefit of being in a, in a company town, whether you're in Nashville, because there's music there, obviously New mm-hmm. York, LA, you know, I mean, I, it's hard for me to say, I know a lot of this is about music and I don't, you know, the music is, it's just, it's the music. Music is very different. It's a different business. I, I will say, you know, there's advantages to being in a space where they're peers because that is, that's your resource coming in. Yeah. And it's always, somebody who knows somebody or somebody who can get you to a party or somebody. And that never changes. You know, I was at a party at, uh, over the holidays and it was a space I never thought I would get into. And you're meeting people at a whole other level. And it's just weird because mm-hmm. 
it it does the networking for you because you're in the space and everybody assumes you should be there. Yep. And so once you're in that space, everybody is a peer. They they may be a big time director, they may be somebody who's starting in the business, but oh, you're a peer, and then it's so much easier to casually have a or not even even not have a conversation. To me, mm-hmm. it's the not having a conversation about the business. But That's right. Here's here's my number. It's like if you don't talk about it, it's like you don't need to, and then it's like yes. oh, you're even cooler because. You're not, you know, everybody is getting pimped for something or jacked yeah. for something and nobody really wants to. And then when the evening is over, it's like, oh, they didn't need me. Maybe I need them. Mm. And then it becomes about, oh, make sure you hit me up and everything. And I think that is also the thing is knowing the timing of it all and not just being in front of people and read my script. It's like, I don't even know you. Yeah. You know, and a lot of times it's when you show value first. Mm. Um in, in any way. And you may not be at their level financially or career-wise or whatever, but you know you, have, you do have value. And I think that's the thing is just the timing, the being in the right space. You know, the question was, how do I, how, I, don't, I don't remember, but it was timing and it was a relationship. Yeah. And it was having something to offer rather than, hey, do this for me. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I got a script, you know, or I got this, or mm-hmm. I got a product. And then, you know, it fills their needs. Well, and, you know, connecting as a human yeah. because you want to work, you want to be around, you want to work with people you want to be around. Yeah. Most definitely work with people and the people I want to be around are the people who don't need me and don't want anything from me. Right. Um, and they certainly may need me, but it doesn't feel like they are just trying to climb onto me and nor do they, right. I think they want to feel like I'm trying to climb onto them as opposed to here's something that's mutually beneficial. Exactly. You know, and I think being transactional and being to me above board about your transactionality, mm-hmm. because that, you know, that's a big part of life. But it's, it's like, I, I appreciate people are truly transactional. Mm-hmm. I really, really do. But I think it's being smart about it. And yeah. Not just, oh, here's, here's, here's what's in it for me. Yes. It's, here's how, how can we possibly benefit each other? Because then it's great. We're all getting something out of it. Right. Yeah. And you have to put the work in, which oh, yeah. you clearly have done and are doing. I believe you wrote at least three different novels in the 90s. So, I mean, we've talked about comedy. We've talked mm. about writing for TV. We've talked about directing. Do you have a favorite art form when it comes to directing? Because obviously, like, when you're writing multiple novels, that's mm. that's a really long process. So, do you have a favorite art form, then or now? I mean, I, I would say my favorite is comic books. Mm. I really enjoy that. Um, it's collaborative enough that you're... You don't feel alone, you know, writing a novel is very, it's lonely and it's just, you get a little, it's tough. Mm-hmm. Um, doing a film, doing a TV show, you need so many people and it's a big price point and, you know, you, the more money, the less creative freedom. And I just feel like comic books, um, the visuals are amazing. The artists I've gotten to work with, they just elevate and elevate and elevate. Mm-hmm. The executives I work with, they really love what they do. Yeah. Um, different than, and I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but a lot of TV executives, they don't, film executives, they don't love film or TV. Mm-hmm. They love being an executive. Right. But they don't love film or television, and it's kind of painful to have conversations, and they don't, you know, I'm, I'm at that age, I'm not a kid anymore, but I'm not s- super old, and there are things in my wheelhouse like, wow, you've never seen that film you don't know where this is coming from you don't know why this exists you don't you know you're so focused on oh it's got to be a hit it's got to be a hit well it should be good 
first. It should be interesting. It should be compelling. And the things that become hits, you know, yes, there are things where people believed in Game of Thrones and there was a story behind it. You know, they shot a pilot and they threw the whole pilot away and they reshot it and they spent a lot of money. They they worked to get to that position, but that was classic HBO of developing something very particularly and getting to it. But then there are things like Squid Games. You know, nobody mm-hmm. knew Squid Games would be, you know, certainly the creators hope for it, but you don't go into it. It's just, it becomes great because somebody had a vision and somebody That's executed right. it and they clearly had enough runway that they could do what they wanted to do. So to me, it's getting that calculus. And I find that graphic novels, comic books for me is that balance of creativity, of freedom, of enough cultural density that it doesn't feel like you did something and there's nothing that came of it. Mm-hmm. And the fan base is very passionate. Even when they dislike something, they're passionate about it. And my thing is I want people, I don't, care whether you like it or dislike it. That's not my objective. My objective is that people have to acknowledge what I do. Mm -hmm. And in that comic book space in particular, you can hate on it, but they, they end up, people end up elevating your material in the conversation. And to me, that's priceless because it's not, you know, the opposite of love isn't hate to me. It's disregard. Mm. And the disregard is where it's painful. It's like hate on it, but spell my name right. Because you still are acknowledging the work and that space, the fans, yes, it can get toxic and it get, can get negative. But generally, when people are talking about the work, they're just very passionate about why they love it, why they don't love it. But they're, you know, they engage. Yeah. And you want, I want that engagement. Um, you know, it's just, I don't like and dislike, you get over very early. I think people need to get over that early. Yeah. But that engagement, that acknowledge it. You know, you're doing the work for me at that point. Mm-hmm. And you're right. The comic book and graphic novel scene absolutely yeah. does that. So just a few more film questions. Yeah. Do you recall how David O. Russell came into the picture? No, I, I know that. Uh, so there was, um, you know, this just goes back to opportunity. There was um, a, a gentleman he passed not that long ago. He was terrific. Um, Paul Witt. And long story about producing and things like that. But he was one of the last... Um, with Tony Thomas, who was Danny Thomas's son and Marlo Thomas's uh, brother, um, Marlo Thomas, who was that girl for way back in the day for young people. But they come obviously from a, a real showbiz mm-hmm. family. And so I was working with one of my early TV jobs. I was working with them. And, you know, I, I uh, this going back to relationships and trying mm-hmm. to use them smartly. And taking advantage of opportunity and Paul Witt, you know, they'd been working in television. And so I I ran into Mr. Witt in in the hallway in the office building. And he was just saying, you know, we really love your work and we're so happy that you're working at the company. And listen, we're moving into film. And if you ever have a film script, we'd love to take a look at it. And I said to him, oh, I have a script. It's perfect. You're going to love it. Uh, I'm just making a couple little tweaks and I'll have it to you. I think I said like in a week. Um, and I didn't have a script. And I had an idea, and I really thought it was going to be a terrific idea. Mm-hmm. And so I, I you know, told him I have it in a week. But then I spent the week, I mean, writing a script. And it was the first feature spec, I think the first feature spec that I had ever written. But really, you know, back then I used to go to Vegas a lot. And I just I went and told my wife, we weren't married at the time, which is my girlfriend. I said, I'm going to Vegas for a week. I got to write the script. I come back with a script. And I, I did. I came back. They had a script. They liked it. They had a couple of notes. They took it into Warner Brothers. They sold it at Warner Brothers. And so 
Then it goes through a real development. And, you know, there was a couple of directors that came on. I wrote a couple of drafts. They wrote a couple of drafts. Finally, David O. Russell either saw a breakdown or something and really liked it. And he came in and he certainly did work on the script, um, to say the least. But it was one of those things that just they went through the development process, but would not have happened if, A, I didn't already know Mr. Witt. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to him and go, hey, I got a TV job and I got a script for you. Right. Um, which probably would have been like, well, you got a TV job. Why are you trying to write a script? Yeah. But it's a whole different thing when they're saying, oh, we love what you're doing. What else do you have? Mm-hmm. And to have it and be ready to go with it. Um, and that's, you know, it got into the process and ended up with David O. Russell and ended up getting made. And it was, you know, then it was another credit. So it was just, again, right space, right time, right attitude, good work ethic, but not trying to push something, letting things both come to you, but then once they're there, not, you know, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, if I ever have a script, I'll get it to you. Yeah. Um, it was taking a chance, but uh, it was, why would one not take that chance? Of course. You know? Is that how you feel you evolved from novels to screenwriting? Because I would consider those to be different mediums. Well, they're certainly different, but I try to approach everything I do trying to make sure that I'm visually expressive. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's certainly different in in a novel than it would be in a film or a TV show or um, in a graphic novel. Mm -hmm. But I try to write in a way that it's just, it paints a picture. It's just, it's, it's hard. You know, the books, you know, writing genre fiction and the more I wrote, the more I would put people of color at the core of it. So it was never a big moneymaker and it really was, you know, it's hard work and it just got to the point where it's something I would like to do again, but I also, it's hard to go back because now I know what I want as an objective and it is right. hard to go back where people, it's like, you know, I never sold a lot of books. So people have, you know, an expectation of, well, you need to write something that's going to sell. And my mm-hmm. thing is, I don't know if I knew what was going to sell, I'd write it. And I wouldn't, I never would have transitioned. I would just wrote a couple of big books and retired. But um, so it, it, they're all particular, but I try to, come at it with a knowing what I do well and mm-hmm. replicating that in very particular spaces. Amazing. So obviously congratulations on your historic Oscar win. Has that freed you up creatively even more to do what you want? Like I want to write and direct this, or I just want to write that. No, I mean, nobody cares. It's, and I, which is fine. And I, to a degree, I don't, you know, I don't have that out. I don't put any prizes out or anything. I think it's always bad to, focus on yesterday or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost, you know, the downside, and I hate to be negative, I'll just be honest, but it's, you know, people want to work with you because you have a prize, but then they don't want you to necessarily be you. And mm, I'm less concerned sure. about the prize of where it's like, well, you now that you've hired me, and as you get older or more self-assured, uh, it's like, I don't, I know what I'm I know what I'm trying to do. I, I don't know whether people will respond to it positively or negatively. I yeah. can't look people in the eye and say, well, let's do this and we're all going to make a ton of money. But sure. I know what I want to do. I know what moves me. I know what excites the people I work with and what helps them to bring their best work and being hyper creative. And so it's, it's more difficult when you're then doing that and people have notes and it's like, well, did you not see anything that I've right. ever done? or anything that I've been part of, because even things that I haven't directed, I've been very fortunate to work with directors who are very, you know, hyper-creative and have very singular voices. And 
interpret the material, ultimately, whether I agree or disagree with that interpretation, they interpret it in a very singular fashion. So it becomes very difficult where people are like, oh, we want to work with you and you have a prize and we want to do awards worthy stuff. And then it's like, yeah, yeah well, can you change this? And you know, right. Like, well, I could change it, but I, I did this for a reason. That's right. And it it may bump you, but, you know, look at the things that I've done. Mm-hmm. I've done them and I've done them to a decent amount of success. So it's not, you know, getting the prize is okay, but it doesn't. You know, yes, if you're Meryl Streep, it's probably very liberating or Kate Blanchett or whatever. But being a writer, you're still in a position where people um, perceive that they know better, which is fine. But then don't, why would you hire me? If you have the answers or you know what you want to do, that's great. But then I'm not sure why I'm here. 100%. That makes sense. So tell us what you're working on now. I'd love to hear more about the other history of the DC universe, BC power, really some amazing, amazing projects. Yeah. I mean, those again are all stuff in the graphic novel space, but Mm -hmm. part of the reason I really like doing those things, the other history of the DC universe is really taking the history of DC Mm -hmm. and much like in life, you know, look, we obviously live in a very polarized time and anything that you do, people are like, oh, why you putting politics in why are you putting your perspective in it although i think it's vitally important yeah. that we even if we're not proselytizing that we put ourselves into our work mm-hmm. because it's an opportunity for people i mean it's just you look at you know greater acceptance of the lgbtq plus community i think it's because in film and tv people started treating and i put this in heavy quotes but normalizing mm-hmm. what is normal lifestyles and normal behavior seeing Morgan Freeman playing president, you know, it may be like, oh, it's just a movie, but it's like, oh, okay, we're Morgan Freeman. We trust him. He's a black dude. He's president. Maybe it starts to open our minds, seeing women in different roles. So I think it's very important to inject um, ourselves in our work. But with the other history, it was an opportunity to deconstruct American history Mm. through comic book history and treating things very real. Whether it's like, okay, well, why did heroes, why did they not intervene during 9-11? Why did they never intervene, you know, back in the day with the Iranian hostage crisis? What is it like for Asian heroes to deal Mm -hmm. with the rise of, you know, the re-rise, not even the rise, because it's always been there, Mm anti-Asian hate? Um, Do people know who Vincent Chin was? Mm -hmm. Do people know Executive Order 9066? what was it like being in the LGBTQ plus community during the era of don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, serve your country. Just don't talk about who you are, right. you know, go put your life on the line, but you know, keep your identity closed. You know, what does that say to somebody serve, but don't serve as who you are. So to me, to be able to take something that, you know, right now talking about heroes, you know, those are our narratives um, and people do it really, really well. But to me, you've got to add more and with the other history of the DC universe, with DC Black Power, which is coming out um, this year during Black History Month, to be able to say to people, um, we want to take your narratives. It's not politicizing it, but we are shifting that lens a little bit and telling these stories and talking about why it's important. Representation is important, and it's not sometimes you don't have to talk a lot about it. No. But again, we go back to like little Nas X, how important is it mm-hmm. is to have, oh, country is really for everybody. And then on top of it, for him to come out and say, 
you've already validated my experience by just loving my music. You've helped to validate it by saying, hey, people of color have a place in country, but you didn't even know that you are lifting someone up who can say, hey, I'm welcome mm-hmm. for all of me. You know, it was it, it was big for little Naz. It was big for country. It was big for all of us because then, you know, maybe I'm tuning into country music awards mm-hmm. and getting a little taste of what's going on there um, where I wouldn't have. So I think it's really important for us to never, you know, rising tide lift all boats. Mm-hmm. And when we elevate people who, uh, you know, don't look like us, don't think like us, you know, we're elevating all the things that we do. And ultimately it's, it's a win for everybody. So um, for me, you know, what I want to try to do in these spaces is just continue to elevate, continue to invite, not try to alienate people, but say, you know, my brand now is, if you're coming to my brand, you know, there's going to be some politics with it. You know, there's going to be some Mm -hmm. social perspective with it. So don't get upset if you're halfway through the book and go, wait, why is there, you know, but I think that's also really important for people to adhere to your brand Mm -hmm. so that you're cultivating your own audience. And that allows you to be your best creative self because it's not, hey, I'm trying to please every single person. Then yes, you need to do something that's big and I don't want to say dumb, but it's going to play in America. It's going to play in China. It's going to play Mm -hmm. in Brazil. It's going to play in Nigeria. And then, yeah, it needs to be maybe more transformers or things like that. Not that those things can't be good, but they're not as specific. So I do encourage people, you know, I found a specific place. Um, I love putting it out in specific ways. Mm -hmm. You know, what is your specificity and what does it take career-wise for you to be able to be specific in your nature every time you you put out product. 100%. So we just talked about so many different types of projects. Do you focus on one project at a time when you're creating? No, I don't. Um, part of it is I just, I love what I do and I love to write and I love to create. Part of it is that fear and panic, you know, going back to talking about the days when you're coming up and you're dodging your landlord. And, you know, I want to, you know, you go through stages. I want to create because I have the opportunity. I want to create because I have a family and I got to, you know, pay the bills. I want to create, you know, now because of a lot of what we do at no studios Mm -hmm. and it helps me to continue to then help other artists or elevate or um, help them uh, in, in any way, shape or form try to get their stories and their work um, to a wider audience. So I I work for that. Um, And then you work for legacy and not legacy like, oh, I want to be celebrated, but it's like, you know, I just want to put things out there and I still have the opportunity to do that. So no, I work on many projects at the same time. Um, I'm very, I don't know, OCD or anal. I don't don't want to be glib about those kinds Mm -hmm. of things, but to me, I just, I want to work and I want to be working and I don't feel good if I'm not working and I don't want to finish something and then have the scramble. Okay, well now what am I doing for, for whatever reason, for me emotionally, yeah. for me um, creatively, for me financially, I don't want to scramble. I always want to have something where it's like, Oh, okay, well that's out there. Let's see if we can finish that off. You know, let's see if we can convert on that one. So how do you juggle multiple creative projects? Because when you use, you know, OCD and anal in like the slang sense, to me, that's, like very focused. So yeah. How do you juggle multiple creative projects at once? I find that fascinating. I I mean, this very sincerely. You just, you got to have the right partner in life. I mean, my wife, I I can't imagine anybody else putting up with 
my lack of engagement, my lack of social engagement, and my desire to work constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've we've worked it out. Um, she's been phenomenal. Um, well, she's creative too, right? She has she's a certainly a, a, a huge creative person. We, we we met working in the business, so she gets mm-hmm. what the hours are like. She's um, developed as a photographer, and I really encourage her now. You know, now that the kids are grown to continue in that mm-hmm. space because um, she's really terrific at that and she's you know she has so many artistic abilities and has stepped back in her life that i hope that she can you know fulfill a lot of um i wouldn't even call them aspirations she doesn't even have those aspirations but you have that skill why would you not um continue down that road and i do think there are things that we want to work on together but you know, that's a huge part of it is the people around you because I don't, mm-hmm. n- nobody else would put up with mm. the lifestyle that I have. And I don't go out and I don't socialize and I don't have a big Rolodex of people. Um, so it was a choice. It was an act of choice that I don't, yeah, almost everything that I do is is centered around how do I maximize my day to be able to work on a lot of things. And then just, you know, I was talking to a young filmmaker over the weekend who I'm supposed to be mentoring and he was like yeah I will write five days a week I'm like oh what do you mean you write five days you know I try to write five days and he's you know I, look I, I always try to say look you got to do what works for you mm-hmm. but my thing was like if you're not writing seven days a week you know you I don't or whatever if you're you know my son I found out is getting into music yeah and I was just so proud of his work ethic because you know as a parent even though I, I work in entertainment you're like oh my god to do anything but that. Um, but <laughs> when you see somebody... We hear that from so many people. Because you get old and you get, you know, you you want your, like, we still gravitate towards, oh, a lawyer, everybody needs a lawyer. Everybody needs... <laughs> I sat down here and your, your lovely mother was like, oh, I know your dad. He was my doctor. So those, you know, we still look at it as being the durable, good, you know, you want your... As a parent, you want to be able to induce your kid to their potential partner. Mm-hmm. Oh, and my son's going to be a doctor. Oh, and you know, his whomever is is they're they're going to be a lawyer. What a great you know, those are the really good professions that we still look towards, or you know, whatever. Um, but to me, when I see people putting in the work, then I then it reverts back to okay, this is this is as durable as profession. What you don't want yeah. is that oh, I'm going to be you know, I'm going to be the next. Travis Scott, I'm going to be the next, which you may be, but my thing is like, if you love, I would rather, and my son came to me and said this, look, I just want, I love creating music. I want to do it. I I think I could make enough money to just live nicely. Mm -hmm. And that to me is different than, oh, hey, dad, I want to be uh, a musician. Do you you know um, Travis Scott? Can you just introduce me and for a hookup? Because I want to hang out. And I'm like, okay, well, that's. Totally. So when I see them, and the same with our other son who wants to be, um, he's creating content and doing social media and things like that. Um, but he's learning a new program. And just over the holidays, I said, okay, let's learn it together. And, you know, he blew past me. I mean, he just, and then was showing me the stuff he was doing. And within four days, he was implementing the stuff he was learning into the things he was doing. And I said, okay, to me, you know, he was he was staying at home. He lives in New York now, but he was at home for the holidays. And I knocked on his door and went to his room. And he's at his desk. He's got his camera out. And I said, that's all I need to see. Yeah. Is that you are living with your weapon now. And you're with that 
24-7. And you're learning to be an assassin. So when they're doing that, to me, it's you're signaling all the things you need to signal. Not even signaling. You're doing it. And then I'm okay with your choices. So, yeah, as a parent, you're just a, And I've been through it all. You know, it's, it's, it's a very tough business. Yeah. It's a very tough lifestyle. And so as a parent, you think, oh, being a lawyer has got to be, once you're in, you're in. You're a doctor, you're in. You're, you're doing something. Um, that's a little scary. But again, I see them putting in the work, and I'm mm-hmm. like, as long as you're realistic about what you want to do, then it's all gravy. Yeah. And if you come in the door, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be Linda Ronstadt in the mm-hmm. 70s. I'm like, well, that, that's done. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yes, they're going to be the people, your Taylor Swifts. But I, you know, the people who have that kind of cultural density, mm-hmm. the way they did in the 70s, the way we, when we all listen to Casey Kasem and his Billboard Countdown, those days are done. So how do you make it as a streaming artist? How do you, yeah. how are you realistic about what you want to do? How do you get there? But how do you keep yourself satisfied? Because you shouldn't look back on it and go, wow, I wasted 20 years of my life. I wasted 30 years. Because it shouldn't be a waste. Whatever you want to yeah. do, it's not a waste. It's keeping that dream very realistic. And then anything can happen. And if it does happen, it's even better. Mm-hmm. But if you know all you do is every once in a while sell a sting or, or sell some library music, Trust me, that ain't a bad thing because right. I've used a lot of library music and, you know, turn myself on to artists or turn mm-hmm. myself on to people or there are artists who I love working with. I guarantee if I mention their names, most people are like, who? But I'm like, man, if I, when I get to work with them, I'm just, I'm skying for days Yeah, because that to me is great working with people whose music I love mm-hmm. and elevating them. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy for my kids. I'm happy for anybody, but keep it realistic. I love it. I, I could do a podcast episode on everything you just said, um, but just a few more questions because yeah, I want to be I'm mindful good. of your time. So the yeah. title of this episode is Repeat and Grow. Yeah. Um, and what I'm referring to there is I, you know, I will have taken musicians through the release cycle from yeah. creation to execution, from recording to release. So how do you know when a project is finished and ready to go or, or is it ever? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't think it's ever r- ready. You know, you'll look at what you do and mm-hmm. want to change it. Or why did I do that? Or I should add a scene. You know, somebody else told me once, and I think it's a really good practice is that whatever you're going to release, you know, I put that you can't, well, I guess you can't see me. I'm putting in quotes, but release it, you know, but release it in the sense that you stick it in a drawer, leave it there for however long and really step away from it because you're so in the weeds mm-hmm. with it. You're so infatuated with it. That if you don't, you know, I guarantee you, even at that, when you release it, release it, you're going to be like, oh, my God, I should have done this or should have done that. But I think stepping away from something for a minute is really, really important. But it's never quite done. You could always, I mean, I never look at anything. Rarely, there are a couple of things in the first two episodes of American Crime mm. that were stellar. And I look at them more, not even for me, but like, how did we, how did we right. get that done? And reminding myself that, oh, there was a time and a space where that was, I'll never have it as good as American crime again. Um, but reminding myself of what what real, a perfect situation mm-hmm. was like. But beyond that, I don't look at things because I will always go back and go, oh, I should have changed it. I should have done that. I, I sh- you know, it, you'll always, always do that. So I say, release it. It's done. 
Yes. Be just be completely done with it. And people say, oh, I saw this. And I'm like, oh, I don't even remember. Well, how do you not remember? Didn't you want to go? <laughs> you know, no, I don't. I haven't seen it in yeah. years and I'll never see it. So it's, you can't have that heartache. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is. You're putting your, sending your kid off in the world. You know, yeah. in real life, yes, you want your kids to interact with you. But it's like, hey, you're your own person. You got to go live your life. And I got to watch from a distance. That's right. So how do you, you know, you touched on this a little bit, but how do you find balance while you're working to support your health, to support your mental health? I mean, along those same lines, how do you, you know, find balance in your life and career? Because your work is so full on. Yeah, I mean, my life has been, and it continues to be more about, and I'm very thankful for my family, because they're pretty much the only other thing I really focus on. Um, You know, it's nice having this business now, but my Mm -hmm. sister really runs the business business. Um, the business being no studios. Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, you know, I think the the biggest challenge is more the mental health thing. I think yeah. everybody coming out of the pandemic, we just realized how important the mental health aspects are. And just, I think, really standing up for myself even more in terms of, you know, I'll be honest, there's something I'm working on now. I'm telling people I can't, this process can't continue because it's yeah. not healthy. For me, and and really explaining to people, I want to do this, and I want to help you, and I want to be my best self, but we can't continue the way it is. Mm-hmm. I like to think on all the shows that I've done, I've really tried, and not tried in the sense that, oh, look at me, or look, I'm trying to do something good, but really tell people, you know, I, I'm not a yeller and a screamer. Mm-hmm. It's it's never, obviously, it's not good to create a toxic work, work environment, but it's not, you're not, you, you can't yell people into better work. No. You can't scream people into better work. But I guarantee you, almost every time when people feel genuinely and know that they're part of the process and that their creative input is respected and that we need them to do it and I want them to do it, they want to put in extra work. Mm-hmm. And they're not looking at their watches. And I don't do it as a trick, like, oh, here's how you get extra. Of course. But if you're if people feel invested, they're trust me, they will either bring their best work or certainly not do their worst work, or then you see people who are like, okay, you're not, you're not here. Yeah. You know? Um, and then it becomes very easy to sort of separate. All right. You, now you get to be part of the family because you're great. And you, you know, if you're great, I'm great. Or people who are, you know, again, they're, they're doing what they need to do. They're not bad. They're not maybe going overboard, but great. You're dependable, which is just as good. And then the people who aren't. So for me, it's a lot of, Mental health is now, you know, if you're talking about how do I keep going, it's the mental health aspect of it. Of I think there's that balance. It's a very tough business. It's a grind. The hours are a grind. So there's that balance between, and again, this is where I think I, I, I fall into the I'm an old person category of like, look, you kids, we're not putting out avocado toast every day. <laughs> but at the same time, there's a space where it's like, it doesn't have to be, it's going to be tough. And if you're down for the tough, if you're down for the work, if you're down for the hours, we can still be here respecting each other, mm-hmm. helping each other. Um, you know, it makes my day longer. I think a day, you know, when you're not engaging with people, trust me, your day is a lot shorter. But I do like coming on set and saying to people, oh, great. How was your weekend? Yeah. Oh, did you guys end up going to that thing? Um, tell your son, you know, oh, he likes comic books. Let me try to get him some. And I, to me, building those where people see you not just as a leader, during the work hours, but you really are a leader and that mm-hmm. you genuinely care 
um, that was something, you know, I learned from my parents Mm -hmm. that you got to lead with caring. Um, And it's also then you don't have to be tough on people. Right. Because the days where you come in and they read, okay, today is not a good day Mm -hmm. or I'm not having a good day. You don't, you know, if all you're doing is being mean to people, I don't know if you're having a bad day. Yeah. But I guarantee you on the days where I'm coming in, it's like, okay, today's going to be a tough day. We're not going to be chit-chatting as much. People can tell when they're like, okay, we need to up it a little bit. And then I don't have to be, you know, if you start with negativity, you only got mm-hmm. negativity to go. If you start with positivity and you arrive to neutrality, you know, people know, okay, today. And then you come back in and you're like, hey, great day today. And they see you're lifted by their presence and their work. It makes the day, they're there for you when you need it. Yeah. Because you've been there for them every day. Mm-hmm. Not, oh, it's a hard day. I need you today. It's, hey, thank you for being here yesterday. I really need you today. But tomorrow, it's, you know, we're, we're back to being equals. So I think that's very important. But the, to your question, how do you keep going? I think the mental health aspect of it, not being... You know, I don't want to use words like snowflake or things like that. Look, you got to come in knowing it's tough, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we you got to show people that you're you're there for them, yeah, and you're going to make this environment. I'm just stunned. I've had people come up to me and and be like, "Hey, thank you." You know, we have directors; they never even talk to anybody. I'm wow. Like, I'm like, you're thanking me. It, it honestly, I'm not trying to self-aggrandize, but it's weird to be thanked for being the bare minimum of nice. Yeah. Of just being decent. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, you know, I don't, I know some of those directors. They're not pleasant people, but I'm like, wow, you can't even say hello. Why would you not want everybody engaged, doing their best work, or seeing, okay, in a good environment, these people are putting everything in. Mm-hmm. That person isn't. Okay, we know where the weak link is. Well, yeah. see, that Midwestern nice can get you far. Makes it it can get you far. There's no, I, and I, I will say this really to people is that. It, people like working with nice people. You don't have to be. You don't have to be a pushover. You don't have to be. No. You know, abused in in what you're doing. But you can be nice, and then when people aren't nice to you, okay, well, I I know it's not me. I I try yeah. to be nice, but I guarantee you, people nice gets you. Nice gets you at least a second bite at the apple, because I, I guarantee you, nobody wants to work with people who are a pain in the ass. Hundred percent. So just two last questions yeah. to wrap up. Do you think about music with your projects? Oh, yeah. Um, There's always one song that will become, you know, I, I, people ask me about writing and I I do very little physical writing during the day, but I do a lot of thinking about everything, the themes, the characters, what I'm doing. So there tends to be like a song. Sometimes it comes organically. I have a music supervisor I work Mm -hmm. with a lot and I'll say, Hey, I need some, songs you know i just need some stuff you know maybe something from the 60s maybe something so out of my wheelhouse or it may be um as i mentioned my son was getting into music and he played a song for me and i was like oh my god i love this song and i love it so much it's like oh i know a scene i want to put it in on this project i was working on and so i just took that song and i used we played it a lot because it just it, if i'm driving it, it reminds me of the show and i think mm-hmm. about the show and if I'm working out, I play that song because while I'm lifting, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm thinking about the show. So I think it's really important to have, well, yeah, I mean, again, you should do whatever you need to, to to get the work done. But for me, it was really important to have a song or have a piece of music where it makes me think about it 
24-7 and keeps me in that headspace. Um, and sometimes the song ends up in the show, sometimes it doesn't, but it just makes me really, 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 really think about something. So yeah, music is a huge part of it. But like I said, there's a music supervisor I work with who is great and really great at finding songs, clearing songs, getting stuff um, invaluable. And, and we have a whole, to, sorry to interrupt, we did a whole episode breaking that down, so everybody knows Well, it's important you because, you know, I, I, she will introduce me to acts and bands and people mm-hmm. I've never even heard of and, and people who I then really love and elevate in, in, in the craft that I do. So it's a good connection for people to have. As a, to me, it's a, it's a highly valuable one because that's somebody I trust. And if she puts something in front of me, I don't even question you know, I mean, I may like it or dislike it, but if I like it, I don't, you know, it doesn't have to be the most famous person in the world. Yeah. They just need to be, um, they need to have something that expresses what I'm looking for emotionally. That's right. So finally, if a songwriter is interested in film scoring or composing, how do you feel they should go about connecting with the film community? Well, as I said, you know, music supervisor is, mm-hmm. is huge for me. And a lot of the, you know, look, I, I can only speak from my end backward, but you know, it's, I think now that I'm dealing with a young person who's coming up in that space, you know, part of it is learning about composing. I think there's probably yeah. a huge difference between just writing a song or mm-hmm. something that could be in a library versus what does it take to really compose? And that was interesting for me because um, there was something I, I needed my son to compose for me. And then, you know, as as, as good as he is, just naturally, and again, I, I will absolutely say it's hard for me to be objective. I am a parent, but there was stuff that I really liked, but then having a conversation about, well, now I need you to hit these beats and introducing him to mm-hmm. time code and things like that. It was good for him because he was learning these things, but I would say it'd be good for anybody just to have a basic understanding of like, okay, if somebody asked me to compose, do I even know what that means? Um, and I think that's really, really important because I can only explain things I don't know a lot about music. And so when I explain things, they're, they're, they're things I say that I know are wrong, but it's the best way for me to express them. They're things that seem simple, but if you have not had a basis of conversation, it'd be really hard. So the composers I work with now, they get it. They know mm-hmm. when I'm saying something, it's like, okay, saying that, but he means this. Um, but understanding that, I would say knowing music supervisors, really important. Um, and then, you know, the people that you want to know are, are generally the people who are one step removed. So knowing assistants, you know, assistants run the town, knowing the people, you know, everybody wants, oh, I want an agent. No, you really want to know the assistant. Um, oh, I want a music supervisor. Well, maybe you want someone who works in their office. Um, those are the people who are hustling. They're the up and comers. They're going to be a music supervisor. They're mm-hmm. going to be an agent. They're going to um, work in music clearances or whatever. So it's hard to get to an agent, but you, you know, the person, the agent is looking to their assistant. Yep. Oh, I need to find this or that. Oh, I know somebody. Mm -hmm. Oh, I ran into somebody interesting. Oh, here's someone you should take a meeting with. Um, And as I said, they're the people who are going to move up into that office and you want to know that person because they're going to run the town one day and getting to an agent or somebody established. Yeah, it'd be great, but everybody's trying to get to that agent. Not everybody I think is savvy enough. And also, that's the people you're going to meet at certain parties. That's the people you're going to meet in your peer group Mm -hmm. that is going to get you to that other next party or event or whatever that may be slightly elevated above where you are now. So to me, it's like never, don't be 
snooty and the people you meet, oh, what? They're not, they're not an A-lister. Why would I, I don't want to, nah, you want to meet the people who are up and coming, hungry. And this goes back to the conversation we had who can be transactional mm-hmm. and, and can be, oh, I, I, it'd be great if I could go to my boss with a yeah. really new cool piece of music. Well, it's great if I can get a really new cool piece of music in front of your boss we can help each other. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden that's not, well, what I mean, I'm doing something. What are you doing? You know, everybody wants to help, you know, every, everybody needs help. Most people, if they're decent people would love to help Yeah, and everybody needs a leg up. So yeah, it's, it's knowing not just high level people. It's, it's knowing people who can actually get things done. Assistance, get it done. That's exactly right. Thank you for everything that you're doing creatively, professionally, here in Milwaukee with no studios. I, I, and I know the audience are truly inspired. And, and thank you so much for your time today, John. I deeply appreciate it. I'm precious. I'm happy to be here in any circumstances. But, um, you know, to me, I, I'm thankful for the opportunity to hopefully, um, well, what little bit I know, oh, put it out there. You know a lot. So any thoughts on John's career and his process of repeat and grow? Because I thought that was a lot. Yeah, Eli. Yeah, just the main thing that stuck out to me that's super relatable and something that I heard him say like at least three times um, in different ways is um, start with where you succeed. Like focus on the positives first. Um, As a self-critical person, um, I tell myself that I'm being realistic when I just like look at all the problems. I'm like, Oh, I'm being realistic, blah, blah. blah. Um, but that's not true. Like you have to start where you're succeeding and then replicate that. Like he said. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That's just kind of where I'm at right now. So, um, that was the main thing that stuck out to me. Very cool. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah. Going back to um, being realistic, um, I think in the beginning, personally, I'm somebody who can just jump way ahead and I need to remind myself, take those little action steps, small wins, and then just build momentum from there. So that was good to hear him touch on that. I get that. And I know you're an entrepreneur and everyone here is an entrepreneur in a way. Like, you know, I'll be working on a massive project and I just feel like I'm not getting anywhere. I feel like I'm some sort of like animal burrowing in the snow or something. And then I pick my head up and I look back. I'm like, oh, wait, I actually came this far, you know? So like we do need to pause and reflect and realize how, we, how far we've come and then, you know, get back in the snow and, and keep burrowing away. Anyone else? Yeah, Maggie. When he mentioned that when he was done with a project, he had to put it in a drawer and tuck it away and then not look at it for a while, um, I related to that because I feel like when I'm working on something, especially towards the end, I'm so critical of it and I'm picking up every single, to me, flaw that no one else is going to notice. And then when I give myself that break and I come back to it like months later, I'm like, wow, this is so much better than I ever thought it was. And I think that's at least for me, the right time to then jump into the next endeavor is when I can appreciate my work instead of criticize it. Amazing. And uh, every artist I've ever worked with is like that. I mean, can other people relate to that? 
there's always that overthinking at the end. And yeah, I think that's really great advice. Step, step away and, and come back. That's for sure. At the same time, I thought that interview was amazing when I did it. And now that I'm watching it back, I have a million criticisms for myself, but different medium. Yeah, adding on to uh, what both of you guys said, um, especially back to John too, like first thing I want to say, like the one thing that really hit me the most was um, like don't focus on your project being a hit right away. And I think that's something that a lot of songwriters tend to get worked up into, especially me. Like I'm always like, and I have a lot of friends who are musicians and two of my friends who are in a pop duo have been going very far. Like I've seen them, like when they started, they were writing songs in their dorm room and now they're traveling across the country. And so that can definitely get worked up on me a little bit. And then going back to what you were saying about him, about his note, like, you know, writing something, releasing it, and then putting it in the drawer for a little bit. And like, you know, maybe not looking at it for a little bit and then finding it again. It's like, wow, like, like I can't believe I wrote this a while ago. And you look at it, you know, after you release it, you know, maybe a year or two ago, and it's like, wow, I have such a different perspective on this. And so that was really influential to me. So, yeah. A hundred percent. And I hope if, you know, you all have learned anything from this podcast, like don't focus on making a hit. And maybe that's a weird thing to say. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this early on, but I like with the artists I worked with, having a hit song was not something I ever thought about. It was always, you know, like, is, is the music great? Do, do I love it? Um, and then connecting with fans a very close second. I just feel like, I don't know, not to bring everything back to sports, but as an athlete, if you're trying to do something, um, you know, it's like Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Giannis or whatever, like they look effortless. Maybe Giannis doesn't look effortless when he does it, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's easier said than done. And if you go back to the Get Your Art Together episode in season one with Justin Vernon of Bon Iver, I mean, that guy was trying so hard for years. He's like, I would go down to Barnes and Noble and buy a book like how to tour, you know, the indie guide to touring or whatever. And he just was trying and trying and trying. And it wasn't until he just gave up and then started over from a very pure place, right? And then made, you know, such beautiful music, posted it online. It spread from there. So... I know it's easier said than done um, to find that flow state, um, but to me, that's what it's all about. And for what it's worth, like pretty much everyone I've ever worked with, um, they <laughs> like when they have success, they're bummed about the thing they have success over, right? Like, and I think this band would be okay with me saying it. Um, we've consulted on Urge Overkill for a really long time. And if you know Urge, you know, they're, they're an amazing band. Like they were opening for Nirvana when Nevermind hit number one, they have very, very loyal fans. Um, but their most famous song is a Neil Diamond cover on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, you know, girl, 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 you'll be a woman soon. And if you're a songwriter and your most famous song ever is a cover that's going to be a little frustrating, right? Or, you know, someone like Brennan Benson, like has this amazing solo career, but then writes a couple of songs with Jack White. And then suddenly like, it's all about the raconteurs. Not that he's not proud of that. Um, so I don't know. I think th that's why it goes back to getting your art together, right? Like, why are you doing this? Are you doing it for pure reasons? Because in my experience, you know, what's pure is what is going to connect with people, right? Instead of trying it or, or forcing it. And I think that even if you, 
do have some, some success when you're trying to have a hit or forcing something, um, I don't feel that that is sustainable for the long term, right? It's, it's that uniqueness, um, you know, and being true to yourself that connects with people. Um, any other comments on, yeah, absolutely. Eli. Yeah, I just have one more. Um, in the end, he kind of touched on the importance of being nice. Um, and that's something I have learned too, through experience. Um, I was raised an athlete and I had like pretty, I had parents with pretty high standards. So I'm very competitive. Um, and I take that approach to like everything I do. Um, and I had never really participated in a local music scene, but there were times when I would be not like on purpose, but just a little bit standoffish and like not as willing to collaborate, just kind of not realizing that everyone succeeds together. Um, so, um, and I, I saw this like played out in example by my drummer, shout out Colin, just one of the friendliest, like nicest people I know. Just one of those people who knows everyone and like, 70% of the people at our shows would be, they would come to see Colin and he was a drummer. Um, so that helps me kind of soften my ego a little bit. And I was just like, you know, I don't need to be so intense with this creative vision all the time. I can kind of just let loose and like be nice, you know, just like, it's not that serious right now. Um, so yeah, it was good to hear that again. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, it makes me think of, I work with Pat Sansone of Wilco and the industry loves Pat. Let me tell you, like, because he is the nicest guy. And so like, just like everyone I come across is, is just like, he's the best. And then, you know, what John was saying at the end, talking about like being nice to assistants and stuff, like, I always say, I always introduce myself to interns, like when I walk into an office, mostly because I remember what it was like to be them. That's kind of my motivation. But then it turns out they really do, um, you know, they, they eventually do become powerful, right? Or they get in certain positions. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that was not my motivation in doing it, but it, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, it's just, you know, being your genuine self, connecting with people, um, definitely makes a big difference. Do we have another question? Yeah, Maggie. Another one for me too. Um, but in the same vein of not trying to, to make a hit or anything like that, um, I love the way he said that you need to inject yourself into your art. And so like, don't worry about the political ends of things. Cause I have some stuff where I feel like it's a little bit controversial in my lyrics. Um, but also that's how I feel and that's who I am. And so like for, when I first released it, I was really kind of worried, um, not that I had much of a following, but I was worried about how that would digest with some people. And it just was really reassuring to hear him say like, well, that's just who I am and that's what my art is about and that's what makes it the art. That's right. Um, absolutely. Like, Again, that's what we're talking about. That's what getting your art together is all about. Like what is pure to you, that's what's going to connect with other humans. And then not to jump around too much, I hate to be negative. I've also worked with artists where, you know, I remember someone introduced me to the president of A2IM at the time, which is the independent labels label group. And I said, oh, I'm Emily. Nice to meet you. He said, oh, I know exactly who you are. You work with the most difficult artists in the industry. You know, like 
it gets around. So, um, so much of it is just doing the things you say you'll do, you know, being kind, replying to stuff. No one, no one minds if you miss an email or a message here or there, but, you know, just trying to stay on top of things. Um, anyone else? That was great. I, I loved your feedback on that. I'm just curious, just a couple more things. Um, how do you all know when it's time to begin the creative process again? Like, how do you know when a project is wrapping up and then when it's time to move on to the next thing? Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Yeah, Eli. Um, when I can't stop myself from creating, like when it just, I just, I don't know, I just sit down and record, you know, and I just keep doing it and it's hitting, like, um, feel it in my gut or, you know, what I'm recording, I'm like, oh, it, like it just excites me, you know, when it starts to excite me again, yeah. Get that, that's why I'm gonna write a third book this summer. If I say it, it'll happen. Um, anyone else on that? Okay, just one last question for me. What have you struggled with, you know, with regard to that creative process and what has worked, if that makes sense? You know, like, does anyone not know when the time is, when the time is to stop? Or is there something, you know, I love that you said gut about, you know, knowing when to move forward, but any thoughts on that as far as the creative process? Yeah. I think for me, like, when I have something, I want to move forward, but somebody else finds something that was older, and I kind of get kind of re-immersed in that a little bit. It's like, do I move on and release something new, or do I try to promote something that I already have because new people are finding it, and it's, like, fresh again. So, yeah, that's kind of hard. Yeah, and, and I get that too, right? Like, um, but I think it's it's fun to mix things up. Like, I've been pretty deliberate in you know, like promoting these episodes, right? Because we're going in a very specific order. But if someone pops something up about the book or someone pops up something up about like my work in with I Voted and, and voter turnout, like it's also good to mix things up, you know, and nice to like call back to your previous work as folks are discovering that. I mean, imagine being that guy, right? Like, to, like he was on Johnny Carson for comedy. Did anybody, I thought I said that in the interview, but clearly I didn't. Um, so yeah, I think it's good, good, you know, to mix things up a little bit too. Cool. Well, we've really hit the home stretch. Does anyone have any questions on anything before I let you go? We're good. Okay, cool. Um, well, join us on Saturday, which is going to be the season finale where we discuss, because you've covered it all. Like we've covered it all. You already know how to do all this stuff. Um, but on Saturday, we're going to discuss when this becomes too much, right? And that's different from not wanting to do the work, right? Where it's, it's gotten too big where you can't handle it. Um, so on Saturday at 12.30 p.m. Central, um, we're going to talk, when do I need an attorney, a business manager, and or a manager, defining an artist's traditional team? Um, and just really quick on that, like, I'm sure some of you know the book, All You Need to Know About the Music Business by Don Passman. So I found that book when I was in eighth grade at Brookfield Square. Now I contribute to that book, which trips me out. Um, but I had Don on season one, which was a huge honor for the business affairs episode. And I'm like, oh, I should reread that book before I interview him. And his first chapter is getting a team together because it was written in 1989, right? Like that's my last chapter because there's so many things you can do on your own. 
And if you want to build a team, you should be doing things on your own. And I think I mentioned when when folks buy the book this podcast is based on directly from me, I can see that sometimes they're coming from some of the biggest management companies in the world. So they're trying to figure out all this stuff too. Um, But we're going to talk about a variety of things as far as team members go. It doesn't, you know, I love how, you know, like I said, John said, assistants run the town. It is so true. Um, But we are going to be chatting with the incredible manager, Aaron Knight, on Saturday. So I look forward to seeing you then. Thanks so much.